Daniel chapter 9, the chapter we read in its entirety last week that we began to consider. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, down to verse 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. The word of the Lord. Have you ever had the experience of seeing a loose thread on your sweater and then pulling on it, only to find out that this one small, seemingly insignificant string was holding the sweater together, and that pulling on that thread a little too hard caused the sweater to begin falling apart? I'm sure that many of you have had that kind of experience this morning as we dive into God's Word. We are dealing with a portion of Scripture that is a little bit like that thread. Small. It's obscure, seemingly trivial when you first look at it, but once you start tugging and pulling on that thread, you realize rather quickly that this one little strand of God's Word is holding a few substantial pieces of theology together. suspect that for most of us here this morning, this little prophecy buried inside of the book of Daniel is practically new and uncharted territory. At the same time, I suspect that a number of us here in this room today have come to embrace some theological convictions that are very deeply related and influenced and rooted in the text we're about to study, this little prophecy known as the 70 Weeks. If you have come, for example, to embrace the teaching that Christ's return is going to occur in two distinct phases, beginning with the secret rapture and then concluding seven years later with the visible return of Christ, it may surprise you to know that this text is one of the primary sources of that teaching. 
Moreover, if you've come to believe in a literal seven-year period of tribulation that will happen immediately following the rapture, during which time all hell will break loose here on earth, you will find that this text lies at the heart and the soul of that teaching. The prophecy of the 70 weeks has inspired a whole raft of popular books and movies, such as the Left Behind series, The Late Great Planet Earth, that old classic film, A Thief in the Night, that just about scared me to death when I was a little kid. It's a text that deeply influences our understanding of the end times. A text that shapes our convictions about the nature of tribulation. A text that influences the way we understand the connection between national Israel and the Christian church. And so, friends, while this prophecy may seem fairly innocuous, in reality it is a biblical thread that touches on some much deeper issues, in fact, some of our most deeply held convictions about the second coming of Christ. That's why this is a thread that is somewhat risky for a pastor to touch on Sunday morning, why it is hardly ever preached on publicly. Because as soon as we touch this, as soon as we begin to tug on it, we know that we are treading on sensitive ground, that we run the risk of offending or even angering some of the members of our congregation. One of the risks of being a pastor, friends, is that there are certain Sundays when we stand up here in the pulpit to minister the word, knowing that we are going to ruffle feathers no matter what we say, no matter what direction we go. Felt that way a couple of years ago when I preached on Mark 13 and the Olivet Discourse. I felt it to a certain degree a few months ago when I preached on the gifts of tongues and prophecy. I'm feeling it again today as I preach on one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the entire Bible, what amounts to a theological dividing line. And so, friends, as I preach today on a very challenging part of the Scripture, I want to ask a favor from you, as I've done a few times in the past, that you'll appreciate the difficulty of preaching the whole counsel of God and that you will be willing to listen to a different viewpoint with open ears and with a teachable spirit, even if you do not agree with that viewpoint when you walk out of this room. I'm asking for two things. I'm asking for open ears and a teachable heart. And in return, I will be as fair and gracious as I can, even as I challenge this morning what has become one of the most popular views of Christ's return. Now, in dealing with a text like this one, I would also remind you of our statement of faith here at Rosedale Baptist and our larger denomination, that that statement, those statements, actually allow for latitude on what we believe about Israel and the second coming of Christ, affirming the, the future and bodily return of Christ, but leaving many of the other details open for discussion. And so while we may not all agree on the specifics of of Christ's return, the good news this morning is that we can all stand united on the main doctrinal issue, which is the fact that Jesus is coming back to this earth in bodily form and that when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead. It is a tragedy, friends, that secondary issues such as the rapture and the millennium and the nature of Israel have become a test of fellowship in many of our conservative evangelical churches when in reality there is plenty of room for us to disagree on these things and to still love and respect one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, with that introduction, strap yourself in as we dive into this passage this morning. 
Now, I'll remind you at the outset, this is a passage that revolves around the theme of exile, in particular, Daniel's expectation that the Babylonian exile would soon be coming to an end. Now, last Sunday, we covered the first half of this chapter. We saw that Daniel had been studying the book of Jeremiah, that he discovered in those prophecies that the exile would last 70 years, after which time the Babylonian regime would be brought down and the nation of Israel, the people of Israel in exile, would be allowed to return to their own land. Daniel understood and Daniel believed God's word to the prophet Jeremiah. And after 65 years in Babylonian exile, he knew that the end was in sight and that God's promises would soon be fulfilled. And so in response to his study of the word, Daniel offers in verses 1 to 19 of this chapter, a beautiful prayer of confession and intercession, pouring out his heart before the Lord in deep contrition and pleading with with God that he would forgive his people, that he would bring the exile to an end. Now as we turn to verses 20 to 27, we see God's response to Daniel's heartfelt prayer. Very instructive, very important to notice here in these verses the timing of God's answer to observe the fact that God hears the prayers of his people immediately, that he knows exactly what is on our hearts and in our minds even before the words come out of our mouth. Even before Daniel concluded his prayer, even before he got up off of his knees, a messenger had already been sent, in this case the angel Gabriel, who we first met back in chapter 8. Gabriel comes quickly to bring an answer to Daniel's request. In verse 21, we're told that he arrived at the time of the evening sacrifice, a small detail that carries tremendous spiritual significance. Even though Daniel was taken into captivity some 65 years earlier, even though the temple was destroyed some 50 years earlier, we discover here in verse 21 that Daniel is still observing the designated hours of Jewish sacrifice with his prayer. During the 70-year exile in Babylon, it was impossible for the Jewish people to offer sacrifices in the temple. But here we have the prophet Daniel bringing the sacrifice of praise in a foreign land, demonstrating through his life and through his actions that he delights in the law of God, that he has not forgotten what the law of God says. This detail reveals the immense godliness of Daniel. It reminds us of how much Daniel loved the Lord, how much he desired to serve Him. And in response to Daniel's prayerful and heartfelt devotion, he's given a beautiful word of encouragement in verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. I love that part. Not only does Daniel demonstrate his love for the Lord through obedience to the covenant, God affirms his great love and his great concern for Daniel. Proof, brothers and sisters, that the God of the Old Testament is loving and kind and gracious and that God's character has never changed with the passing of time and with the transition of covenants. Through the angel Gabriel, God confirms his love for Daniel. He demonstrates that love with an immediate answer to his prayer. And that is the prophecy that we read in verses 20 to 27. Brothers and sisters, before we dive into the details of the prophecy, there is something here in the text that ought to encourage us and uplift our spirits, namely the truth that God loves his people and that God is willing to hear and to answer our prayers. 
It's a wonderful illustration of a New Testament principle, the truth of 1 John chapter 5 that says, and this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests we have asked of him. What a comfort, what an encouragement to know, friends, that whenever we are praying or responding in prayer to the Scripture, whenever we're asking God to act according to His holy will as revealed in His holy word, we can be absolutely confident that He heals us, that He hears us, and that He will answer us. The Bible never promises that God will give us whatever we want without any conditions or qualifications, but we do have a promise in the Scripture that God hears us when we pray and that God will answer every prayer request that lines up with His holy will. Now sometimes when we pray and when we intercede on behalf of others, God's will is very clear because it's right there on the page of Scripture in front of us. But other times when we pray, we may not know exactly what the will of God is in that situation. For example, we might pray for a brother or sister who is sick that they might be healed. Or we may pray that God would open the door for a specific job or a specific position, not knowing precisely what God's will might be. And so in those cases, we humbly present our request to the Lord in the full confidence that He hears us and that He will always do what is good and right. Sometimes he answers those prayers in the affirmative, and we rejoice. Sometimes he answers those prayers in the negative. Sometimes he makes it very clear that we are to wait and to persevere in prayer. But we can always rest assured, God is listening. God loves us. God will always act for our good and for his greater glory. In the case of Daniel's prayer, this petition that God would fulfill the promises of his word and bring the exile to an end, the answer comes immediately, and we see it summarized in verse 24. And by the way, I think verse 24 is probably the most important verse of the prophecy. It says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy. Here in verse 24, we're given a summary of God's answer to Daniel's prayer, a few issues relating to the future that will be fleshed out in greater detail in the remaining verses. God has an important message for his servant relating to the exile. As I indicated last week, God is now going to show the importance of taking a long-term view of history, understanding that God's time frame does not always match up with our expectations. Daniel knew that the 70 years of exile were about to expire, and because of that, he and the rest of the Jewish people were expecting and anticipating the dawn of a new age of blessing and prosperity back in their own land. But now God is going to give a sobering word of clarification. Israel's suffering is not going to end when they're back in the land. That suffering is going to continue for many years into the future. Yes, God will fulfill the promise He spoke through Jeremiah. Yes, the Jewish people will once again inhabit the land, but it will not be the utopia they were hoping for. The exile is going to end in a technical sense, but at the same time, the exile is going to continue as the enemies of God rise up and persecute the covenant people. 
Through this prophecy of 70 weeks, God is helping Daniel understand that the end of exile is not the end of trouble and tribulation for the people of God, but that these hardships will continue to be a reality for 77s or 70 weeks as it's often translated in our English Bible. The mention of the 77s or the 70 weeks here in verse 24 is the first of many interpretive challenges that confront us in this prophecy. And as you can probably imagine, there are various ways to understand this. On the one hand are the interpreters who think that we should take this number, 77s or 490, in a very literal sense. That we should understand it as 490 years, beginning with the decree mentioned in verse 25 and ending with the desolation of verse 27. This approach assumes that we're dealing with weeks of years, that we ought to take the number 490 with absolute uh, literalness, not one year more than that and not one year less than that. But there's a second approach to the 70 weeks prophecy, and that is to interpret this number figuratively. And that is the method that I would commend to you this morning for reasons I'll explain. The first reason that we, the readers, should be open to a figurative interpretation of the number is because of the type of literature we are dealing with here in the second half of Daniel, the apocalyptic genre which is full of symbol and metaphor. Whenever we are reading apocalyptic books in the Bible, such as Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation, we need to realize that numbers frequently function as symbols, that numbers often carry with them a symbolic and a figurative meaning. Now, friends, I believe in taking a literal approach to Scripture. If you know anything about me at all, you know that I'm not the kind of guy that plays fast and loose with the Word of God. We ought always to approach the Bible literally in a serious state of mind, but that doesn't mean that we always read the Bible with a wooden inflexibility. To read the Bible literally means that we interpret and read the Bible according to the original intent of the author with a sensitivity to the type of literature that we're dealing with. A few weeks ago I gave you an example of this from the book of Psalms and I'll repeat it again today. When we read in Psalm 91 that the Lord will cover you with his feathers, we don't conclude that God physically resembles a chicken or that he has literal feathers and wings. We recognize in that verse poetic metaphor. And in the same way, when we see numbers mentioned in apocalyptic passages, we must at the very least consider whether those numbers carry symbolism that was intended and inspired and put there by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the case of the text that's in front of us this morning, I am of the opinion that we are dealing here with a symbolic number and not with a literal quantity of years. The first hint that this is the case comes from the mention of 70 right at the beginning of the chapter. The 70 years of Babylonian exile predicted by the prophet Jeremiah. Now Daniel rightly understood the exile would last 70 years, but now God is giving him a different perspective on suffering. Not 70 years of suffering, but 70 years times 7. In other words, this is going to be a much longer period of suffering than Daniel expected. Over in the New Testament, you may recall that the Lord Jesus used a similar expression when the Apostle Peter asked him whether he should forgive his brother seven times. And Jesus said that Peter should forgive him what? Seventy times seven. Now, did Jesus mean by that, Peter, you can only forgive him, you know, up to 490 times, but not 491? Of course not. 
He wasn't giving us a mathematical formula or mathematical cap. And we have to recognize the possibility of similar language here in Daniel 9. A creative multiplication of the number 70 indicating a much longer period of oppression and persecution, certainly much longer than Daniel and the Jewish people were anticipating. 70 times 7 appears to be a play on the 70-year exile, but a second reason we need to entertain a figurative interpretation is the significance of the number 49 in the larger context of the Bible. For a Jewish man like Daniel, who is intensely familiar with the Old Testament law, the mention of the number 49 or any multiple of that number would immediately call to mind what God had said in Leviticus 25 concerning the Sabbath laws, and the year of Jubilee. According to the Jewish law, every seventh day of the week was a day of rest. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year in which the fields were to lay fallow. And every seventh sabbatical year, every 49 years was a Jubilee period followed in the 50th year by the year of Jubilee. Now on the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven in Israel. All slaves were released in Israel. All property was returned to the original owner. It was a great year of celebration. It was a reminder to the people of God that the God that they, we worship is a God of mercy and forgiveness, a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so, friends, we are not dealing here with a random, arbitrary number. The number 490 is overflowing with biblical significance. It is the jubilee period raised to the power of 10. In other words, 10 jubilee periods pointing us forward in time towards the ultimate day of jubilee, which is described in verse 24. Now listen to this. It says that it is a day that would finish the transgression, that would put an end to sin, that would atone for iniquity, that would bring in everlasting righteousness, that would seal both vision and prophecy, and that would anoint the most holy. By the way, some of your translations will say the most holy place, but in the Hebrew it's ambiguous. It can mean a holy person or a holy place, and I take it to mean the anointing of Jesus the Messiah. What's being prophesied here in the 70 weeks is the final day of Jubilee. And although the significance of that number might go right over the heads of most Canadians, it did not go over Daniel's head. Now friends, as Christians living under the new covenant, we stand at a different vantage point than our brother Daniel. And with the benefit of history and of hindsight, it ought to be very plain and very obvious what this summary in verse 24 is talking about. I don't think any Christian believer could read that list in verse 24 and not have an inkling of the fact that these things have been fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a high-powered theologian to know that this is a prophecy concerning our Lord and His redemptive work, the work that He accomplished at Calvary, thus bringing an end to the exile, thus putting an end to temple ritual through His once and for all sacrifice for sinners. Jesus came into this world to usher in the final and the ultimate year of Jubilee to manifest God's grace and kindness towards lost sinners like you and me, believing Gentiles right alongside believing Jews in a new covenantal body that we call the church. And if you can understand that, brothers and sisters, you have already understood the main thrust of the prophecy, and from that starting point, all of the other details will start to fall into place. 
In the final analysis, this is a prophecy about Jesus the Messiah who came to make a new covenant with Jew and Gentile and thus to bring the exile to an end, not for the Jew only, but for all peoples, all nations, and all languages. Here we have the ultimate, the final answer to Daniel's prayer, which from his historical vantage point was still many years in the future. I've given you several reasons why the number 490 should be interpreted figuratively. One final reason why this must be so is that no literal scheme of year counting actually adds up. In my studies this week, I read a number of different commentaries from all across the theological spectrum. And over the course of my preparation, I encountered several attempts to interpret the number literally and to make that number fit so that it brings us very precisely and very neatly up to the year A.D. 33 when Jesus died. And you know something, friends, after reading a few tortured and detailed explanations, complete with lunar calendars and solar calendars, Gregorian calendars, leap years, all kinds of other qualifications and caveats, I came to the conclusion that none of these literal theories of counting can be made to fit the historical data without fudging and stretching the text to make it fit your predetermined conclusion. If you want to interpret the number 490 in a strictly literal way, you have no choice but to fudge and to stretch and to force and to twist because the numbers quite simply don't add up. And so instead of starting the prophetic clock in 539 BC when Cyrus the Persian issued his decree and brought the 70-year exile to a conclusion, these interpreters need to handpick a different decree from a different king who lived about 100 years later after Daniel had been in the grave for 100 years. And then because the numbers still don't work, they select a different calendar to shave off a few more years. And then because the numbers still don't work, because there are other theological biases involved in the mix, they postulate an indeterminate gap of time between week 69 and week 70 so that the 70th week is not counted in the total of the, of, uh, the other 69. Friends, if you struggle with insomnia this week, if you want to delve into the jungles of interpretation, I would encourage you by all means do so. I have a few books I could loan you. But just know that I went into the jungle already this week and I can tell you the numbers do not add up unless you are willing to insert a variety of caveats and qualifications and gaps into the text. And so in my opinion, friends, it is far better to take the number 490 for what it appears to be, a highly symbolic number that points us towards the ultimate and the final year of Jubilee, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant in His blood. Now those of you who are bold enough to venture into the jungle of interpretation will discover that there are three main approaches to this prophecy and I want to briefly outline two of them and then to commend a third approach which I'm convinced is the right one. The first approach to this prophecy is the one taken by our Jewish friends who do not see Jesus as the promised Messiah and who therefore do not want to accept that this could possibly be a prophecy concerning his life and his death. 
consulted my Jewish study Bible this week, as I often do when I preach from the Old Testament, I discovered that the leading rabbis in modern Judaism understand this prophecy as being totally fulfilled through the tyranny and persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes, certainly one of the darkest and most depressing periods of Jewish history. Now, a couple weeks ago when we were studying Daniel chapter 8, I introduced this man named Antiochus. I told you that he was the Adolf Hitler of his day who mercilessly persecuted the Jews. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed the observance of the Sabbath day. He forcibly caused sacrifice to stop in the temple for a period of three years. And according to the religion of Judaism, Daniel's prophecy is to be understood historically in terms of Antiochus' oppression and the eventual liberation of Jerusalem and the temple by Judah Maccabees and his family. Now the problem with that point of view ought to be fairly clear to us as Christians. It's simply this. The Maccabees brothers did not do the things that are mentioned by Gabriel in verse 24. They didn't put an end to sin. They didn't bring an end to to iniquity. They certainly didn't bring in everlasting righteousness. It's true that the Maccabees family won a great victory over a terrible oppressor, but that victory was temporary at best. It was a victory that was very quickly eclipsed by the brutal opposition of the Roman Empire, the eventual siege and slaughter that happened in 70 AD when the temple was once again razed to the ground. That's the first major approach. The second major approach to this prophecy comes from within our conservative evangelical circles, and it comes from a relatively recent system of theology known as dispensationalism. At this point, I need to give you a little lesson in history and theology. Dispensationalism got its start about 200 years ago with an Irish clergyman named J.N. Darby, who is also one of the founding fathers of a Christian group that we know today as the Plymouth Brethren. Although Darby was ordained as an Anglican minister, he eventually left the Church of England and he pioneered a brand new approach to Bible interpretation, dividing biblical history into a number of distinct eras which he referred to as dispensations and also advocating a strong distinction between Israel as a nation and the church so that God's plan for national Israel is distinct and separate from his plan for the church. Now, according to this the teaching of Mr. Darby and the dispensationalists, Jesus came into this world to offer the kingdom of God to the Jews. But when they rejected it, and when they spurned his offer, he initiated a second plan, which was to go to the cross to die for sin and to institute the new covenant on the day of, or to institute the church on the day of Pentecost. Dispensationalists sometimes refer to the church as a parenthesis in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. They teach that one day God will suddenly and unexpectedly remove the largely Gentile church from this world in an event known as the secret rapture. And then with the largely Gentile church finally out of the way and safely caught up into heaven, God will once again turn his eye towards Israel. He will once again pursue his plan with ethnic Israel during a seven-year period of persecution that's often called the Great Tribulation. This will be, according to dispensationalists, a time of Jewish persecution unprecedented in world history when the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, when the Antichrist will rise and feign peace with the Jews only to betray them and to unleash horrific violence and persecution. 
The Antichrist will have free reign on the earth for three and a half years. At the end of those years, the Lord Jesus will return to destroy the Antichrist and to vindicate the Jewish believers in the battle of Armageddon. This battle will then lead into a thousand-year dispensation of peace and prosperity known as the millennium, during which time God will fulfill His land promises to the Jewish nation, during which time sacrifices will be offered once again in a restored and reconstructed temple. The millennium will end with another rebellion against God, and in the wake of Christ's victory, the Lord will usher in the new Jerusalem as the eternal home for His chosen people. You know, friends, like many, if not most of you, I grew up with this distinctive understanding of the secret rapture and the return of Christ, assuming that it must be true, because it was the only interpretation of the Bible I ever heard. What I didn't know in my younger years, what I've since come to know and to understand, is that this particular teaching about the rapture did not appear in church history until about 200 years ago. And that much of the structure upon which it is built comes from this very chapter in Daniel 9, one of the most difficult and obscure passages in the Bible. That's why I said at the beginning of the sermon, this prophecy is like a thread in the sweater. If you see it hanging and you start to pull it, you will discover for better or for worse that it is connected with many different doctrines. It's connected to your theology of Israel, to your theology of the temple, to your theology of the rapture, to your theology of tribulation and suffering. About 15 years ago, as a student at the University of Guelph, I started to pull on this thread as I dug deeply into, into the Bible, as I started to study theology and the history of interpretation and the church more formally, and what happened in my life as a result was nothing short of a theological revolution. I came to see the Bible in a different way. I came to interpret some of the biblical texts through a different lens. I came to change some of my most deeply held beliefs about the rapture and the return of Christ. And so friends, while I am deeply grateful, I am deeply debted to all of the godly dispensationalists who led me to Christ, who taught me to love the Bible, who helped me in so many ways to get my grounding in the Christian faith, I have since moved away from that theological system, even though I'd be the first one to tell you that those who embrace and promote it are some of the most godly people that I know, and perhaps even some of you in this room today. And so, friends, if you're here and you embrace a dispensational approach to the Bible, please know that I love and respect you, even though it is certain, it is unavoidable, that we are going to have differences on a few issues that are very near and dear to both of our hearts. Daniel 9 may at first glance appear to be insignificant, but for the dispensationalist understanding, this is one of the key critical texts in the Bible, what some have called the linchpin of the entire dispensationalist system. According to dispensationalist interpreters, Daniel's prophecy finds part of its fulfillment in the first coming of Christ, which is now in the past, and part of its fulfillment in the second coming of Christ, which is yet in the future. According to this view, 69 of the 70 weeks were fulfilled with the crucifixion of Christ, but then something totally unexpected happened. Unbeknownst to the reader, unbeknownst to Daniel for that matter, these interpreters insert a gap between the 69th and the 70th week and contend that we as the church are now living inside of that gap as we look back on the cross of Christ and as we look forward to the secret rapture. This alleged gap between the 69th and the 70th week is sometimes referred to as the dispensation of grace, the church age, or what is often considered to be the parenthesis in God's dealings with Israel. 
We're not sure how long this gap is going to last, but we do know the gap is now 2,000 years and counting. And just think about that for a minute. The gap here in the prophecy is being, is being said to be four times longer than the 400 years itself. Dispensationalism holds that the next event on the prophetic calendar is the secret rapture of the church, which could happen at any moment. And when the rapture happens and God turns his attention back to the Jewish people, the prophetic clock of Daniel 9 will begin to tick once again. The last seven years or the 70th week is what they refer to as the Great Tribulation. And this then becomes the basis for interpreting the entire book of Revelation. It becomes the basis for interpreting the Olivet Discourse of our Lord. And it becomes a basis for fitting all of these events within a very brief period of seven years, which is called the time of Jacob's trouble or the 70th week of Daniel. Although the vast majority of evangelicals do not realize it, Darby's interpretation of Daniel 9 is the foundation upon which the tribulation and the rapture stands. And if that interpretation is wrong or misguided, the implications are obvious. We've got to rethink our understanding of some of these things. Well, I briefly sketched out two different approaches to the prophecy that I believe are problematic, but now we come to the third approach, which I'm persuaded is the correct one. The interpretation I'm about to explain may be new to some of you, but in fact, this is a very old interpretation. It's the interpretation that has held sway in, through the, in the church for the vast majority of our history. It was a view overwhelmingly embraced by both Catholics and Protestants until the rise and the rapid spread of dispensationalism about 200 years ago. Now this classic Protestant view understands the 70 weeks as having been fulfilled with the death of Christ and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, although I should note that some interpreters like myself believe that we are now living in the second half of the 70th week. So with all of this framework of history and interpretation in place, let's refocus on the biblical text and notice that the prophecy of the 70 weeks unfolds in three stages. There are seven weeks, there are 62 weeks, and there's one final week. First of these stages is given to us in verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. There are two questions that immediately rise here in this verse. First of all, we need to ask which historical decree is being referenced. Secondly, we need to ask who is the anointed one? Although dispensationalists typically relate the decree of verse 25 to events that took place a hundred years after Daniel's death in an effort to get the numbers to add up properly, I want to suggest to you this decree is actually a reference to something that happened in the very year that Daniel prayed in sackcloth and ashes, in the very year he received this prophecy. The year was 539 B.C., and it was the year when Cyrus, the Persian king, issued a decree to allow the Jews to return back to their homeland. Because the entire context of the chapter is related to the end of exile as prophesied by Jeremiah, it would only make sense that the prophetic clock begins as soon as the 70-year exile ends and not a hundred years later. And so, friends, on that basis, I conclude that the 70 weeks begin where the 70 years end, the year 539 B.C., and that the decree mentioned in this verse is the decree of Cyrus, the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, and the answer to Daniel's prayer. 
Stage one begins with the decree of Cyrus in 539 and extends to the coming of this anointed one. That is probably a reference to Zerubbabel, who was the governor and the prince of the Jewish people at the time when the temple was rebuilt. First stage of this prophecy covers the time between the end of exile and the rebuilding of the temple, but the second stage in God's unfolding plan is described in the, in the second half of verse 25. It says, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with square and moat, but in troubled time. If you've ever read the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will know that the initial efforts of the Jewish people to rebuild the fallen walls and to reconstruct the temple were met with intense hostility and opposition, so much so that the temple project was delayed for years until the prophet Haggai was called to spur the people back to action. We also know from historical sources that the Jewish people suffered incredible hardship and persecution once the city and the temple had been rebuilt, most notably the, the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes that we've already spoken about, and later on the persecution of the Romans that culminated in the horrific events of 70 AD, events that we talked about in some detail a couple years ago when we studied the Olivet Discourse. The first stage of seven weeks brings us to the re up to the rebuilding of the temple. The second stage of 62 weeks includes all the opposition that the Jews endured from the Greeks and the Romans. And when you add up those two stages, the seven plus the 62, we find ourselves at the end of week 69. Well, the third and the final stage of this prophecy is by far the most difficult to interpret, and we read it in verse 26 and 27. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, brothers and sisters, these are probably the most challenging and difficult verses in the entire Bible. And the difficulty that we have in understanding them is compounded by the fact that we're not even entirely sure how the Hebrew should be translated. If you read these verses in a few different English translations and compare them, you will notice significant differences in translation, even some alternate translations that are given down below in the footnote. And so however we come to understand these verses, we need to be honest enough to admit they are exceedingly difficult to interpret. They are not entirely clear in the original Hebrew. But translation difficulties aside, the way I understand these final verses is that verse 26 and verse 27 stand parallel to one another and that these two verses describe the same events from two different perspectives. In order to help you understand what I'm talking about, I put the verses side by side up on the screen and I've highlighted the words in two different colors so that you can trace the parallels. In verse 26, we read about an anointed one who will appear after the 69th week and will be cut off and have nothing. Now, according to the dispensationalist interpretation, the events surrounding the anointed one happened during a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. But I'd like to point out here that such a gap is in no way demanded or even suggested by the text. 
The most normal, the most logical, the most literal way of reading this prophecy is to see that events happening after week 69 occurred during the following week, namely week 70, and not during an indeterminate, unmentioned gap. And so I would strongly suggest to you, on the basis of the text itself, that the anointed one is cut off during the 70th week and not during a gap in between the 69th and the 70th. Now, furthermore, if the cutting off of the anointed one is a reference to the crucifixion of Christ, which I believe that it is, and if this event does indeed occur during the 70th week, which the text suggests it does, we are brought to a rather important conclusion. The 70th week is something that has already begun in the past, and it is not something that is yet to begin in the future. That's key to understanding this prophecy and to seeing the differences in interpretation. In verse 26, we see this remarkable prophecy of Christ's crucifixion. The anointed one is cut off. And then we move into verse 27 and we read about this person who will make a strong covenant with the many for one week and as a consequence of that covenant will put an end to temple sacrifice. Now this is where things start to get really interesting because according to the dispensationalist position, the one who makes the strong covenant with the many for one week is the Antichrist. Dispensationalists say this is the Antichrist, an evil person who will rise up during a future tribulation period and will make a covenant with the Jewish people only to break it and to put an end to sacrifice in a future temple that will one day be rebuilt. I'd like to suggest to you, however, a very different understanding of this verse, that the person who makes the strong covenant in verse 27 is the same person who is cut off in verse 26, that both of these are references to Jesus Christ. In other words, this is not a prophecy about the future Antichrist making a covenant with the Jews during a seven-year tribulation. This is a prophecy about the new covenant that would come through the death of Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah. You see, brothers and sisters, when Jesus died on the cross, he brought into effect a new and a better covenant. It's the covenant prophesied by Jeremiah, the covenant spoken of in the book of of Hebrews. It is Jesus, not the Antichrist, who makes a strong covenant with the many, and the consequences of the new covenant are precisely what we read in verse 27, that through the cross of Jesus Christ, all temple sacrifice, all temple rituals are brought to their fulfillment and are no longer necessary. The sacrifice that our Lord made on the cross was the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices and therefore what we're really dealing with in the first half of verse 27 is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus, the true temple of God who has rendered the old physical temple obsolete. I like what Ian Duguid says in his commentary, an Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary. He writes, with the coming of Jesus into the world and especially with his death and resurrection, the 70th week is dawned. In Christ, our jubilee trumpet has sounded. The victory over sin and transgression has been won. What is more, with the death of Jesus on the cross, the sacrifices of the Old Testament become redundant and worthless. The Son of Man gave His life as a ransom for the many, bringing those whom God had chosen into the new covenant relationship with the Lord. Well, the only thing that remains to be explained in this prophecy is the mention in verse 26 of the people of the prince to come and in verse 27 of the one who makes desolate. Since we now know that the death of Jesus occurred 
inside of the 70th week and not in a gap before the 70th week, there is no compelling reason why we would need to relegate any of these events to the far future. And that's especially true considering what we know has happened in the past. What's being described here in the second half of these verses is not the future desecration of a temple yet to be built by an antichrist yet to come. This is quite simply a prophetic description of the events that happened in the year 70 AD when the Roman general Titus Vespasian violently subdued the Jewish uprising, slaughtered tens of thousands of people, and then commanded his soldiers to raise the temple to the ground. That's the event that Jesus refers to as the Great Tribulation. The 70th week is not something yet to happen in the future. It is something that has already happened in the past when the types and the shadows of the old covenant temple were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and then cleared away by the Roman military. For as the author to the Hebrews wrote long ago in the passage I read at the beginning of the service, for what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. And indeed it did pass away. Pass away. Now that, brothers and sisters, is the way that the church universal has understood the prophecy of the 70 weeks for most of its history. It's how many of the early church fathers interpreted this text. It's how all of the Protestant reformers interpreted this text. And it's how I've come to interpret it after wrestling with these issues very deeply and intensely. And if I haven't persuaded you this morning with the viewpoint I presented, I hope at the very least I have helped to challenge and to sharpen you with a different point of view to give you something to think about as you continue to study and treasure God's holy word. And even if we can't agree on all of the details of this prophecy and fulfillment, we can still rejoice together this morning in the things that we can agree on as brothers and sisters in Christ. That our Lord Jesus came to finish transgression, that he came to atone for iniquity, and that he is indeed coming again to rule and reign forever in a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. And so, Christian friends, in spite of our differences, in spite of our disagreements, we declare together this morning with one heart and one voice, Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus.